0: Uh, If you could look at your bulletin, the front of your bulletin again, Uh, this fall we've kind of, some of of the Sundays this fall I've been talking a little bit about our purpose statement at the church, reminding us why we are here, why we're doing what we do. Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication and today I just wanted to talk briefly about service this is a way that disciples are made this is one of the ways that we grow and are sanctified in God's sight and I was just thinking what a joy it is and you can testify to this if, if it's true for you what a joy it is though when you serve the Lord doing especially doing something you love doing when you, you know, there's a lot of the ways we serve the Lord and it's not always something we love doing. All of us can help clean and, and move chairs around and, and do other things. But man, I, one of the unique things that God has said he has done for his people is he's given them gifts and he's given them unique passions and des- desires and skills intended to build up and edify the body. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to think about how, how can you do that? What are those things that you have been gifted with? What are those things that uh, you enjoy doing, that you're skilled at doing? And how can you leverage those for the glory of God and for the building up of our church? Um, Gary Williams gave a great sermon on this a few weeks ago I encourage you to 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 listen to that it's all about service and and Jesus just talked about service so much in his ministry and if we are his disciples and he is our master then he is who we want to become like and it is in serving others that we uniquely identify with Jesus in a special way and so I encourage you to do that. Inside your bulletin, uh, there's a list of some of the ways we've brainstormed about ways you can help just here at our church. And on the back side, there's a, there's a list of ways that you can serve in our community. But uh, I pray that our church would not be uh, known only as hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. So, um, Let's get to today's passage. We're, last week we, 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 we bit off a huge chunk of scripture and today we're gonna do the same thing because it's a narrative and it just makes sense to read the whole thing in context. Um, when the Apostle Paul was on trial in the first century AD, he, he showed himself before the courts, before his judges to be a very reasonable and intelligent individual. Uh, Paul was not a crazy man. He was not gullible. He was not greedy for power. He was not driven by impure motives. Paul was a disciplined and intelligent man, and he was sharing a message that was grounded in reality and that was also verifiable by many eyewitnesses. And for these reasons, combined with the fact that Paul had not committed any crimes, the the Roman court system did not know what to do with Paul. They basically just kept passing him around between courts, just like they had with Jesus. And last Sunday, we read about how Paul reasoned with the Roman governor Felix and his wife Drusilla about faith in Jesus Christ And this morning, we'll see how Paul reasons with a different audience. And as we do that, we'll talk about how this passage pertains to all of us wherever we are on our faith journeys. So please open with me to Acts chapter 24, verse 27. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to start right at the end of Acts 24, verse 27 there. Um, And just as a reminder, Paul has now been in custody for two years in Caesarea because they don't know what to do with him. The Roman governor, Felix, couldn't find him guilty of any crimes, but he was in a predicament. He didn't want to pass, uh, he, he didn't want to just like release Paul because that would make the Jews angry. And so he just kind of kept paralyzed and he kept Paul locked up. And eventually, that Roman governor Felix was replaced by a new governor named Festus. And that's where we pick up here in Acts 24:27. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would bless our reading of this word, that you would work supernaturally through your gospel to encourage our hearts and to give light and faith to those who don't have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. And that he himself intended to go there shortly so he said let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there's anything wrong about the man let them bring charges against him so here upon arriving in Caesarea one of the first things this new Roman governor does Festus does is he wants to meet with the leaders of the people that he will be overseeing and so that's why he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the Jews now remember, two years earlier, the Jews had tried to set up an ambush to kill Paul on his way to court, and so that's why he got moved to Caesarea, and now two years later, they are urging this new Roman governor to do the same thing, bring Paul to Jerusalem, because they're secretly planning another ambush to kill Paul on the way. And since, you know, Festus is like, whoa, what's going on, this is brand new, he says, listen, if, if, if there's justice that needs to be done, just bring him to Caesarea, come and accuse him in court there and that's exactly what they do so let's read what happened here in verses 6 to 12 after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Kaiser have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, and as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's anything, uh, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so again, the Jews here bring many charges against Paul. The problem is they have no proof. They have no evidence, nothing to back up their claims. And Governor Festus here sees this. He sees how angry the Jews are, how badly they won't want to put Paul to death. And he sees for himself, this is not a, a great way to start my reign here. Uh, he, he can't see how Paul has broken any laws. However, at the same time, he wants to start his job on on good terms with the Jews because it's, it's gonna make his life very difficult if he's in conflict with them. And so he decides to do what the Jews asked him to do. He says to Paul, why don't, you know, why don't we just move your trial to Jerusalem where all of this happened and I can judge you there? And Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen and I'm in a Roman court of law and that's where I should be tried. I'm innocent. If I'm guilty, then you should kill me. But if I'm innocent, don't send me back to the Jewish courts. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so when he said, I appeal to Caesar, he was doing what only a Roman citizen could do, right? Because not everybody in the underneath the umbrella of the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. But he, being a Roman citizen, demanded that his case be heard in Rome and judged by the emperor himself. And so festus it says conferred with his council make sure paul's really a roman citizen and that he can do this and he says to paul to caesar you have appealed to caesar you shall go and and probably festus was more than happy to do this right it's like oh sweet i don't have to worry about this anymore the catch though was this festus had to write a letter to the emperor explaining what paul had done wrong and why this case demanded the emperor's attention. And Festus didn't know what to write to the emperor because Paul hadn't done anything. And so he takes a few days to try to figure out what to write to the emperor, and then some royal visitors show up. Let's read about this, Acts 25, 13 to 22. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, so these these people visiting Festus here in Caesarea, this is King Herod, Agrippa II, and his sister Bernice. And as many of you know, Herod came from a long time family line of evil Jewish kings who worked for the Roman Empire. Herod's grandfather was the king who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod's father was the king who killed John the Baptist and killed other Christians. He was the one who wore that fancy robe who God struck down eventually because he wanted people to worship him as a god. And now this Herod, Agrippa II, was, he was in charge of some of the regions near Caesarea, and so basically he was just dropping by to welcome uh, Festus to the area, and since Festus is kind of in this pickle, he doesn't know what to write to the emperor, he, he asks Herod for help, and Herod says, well, I'd like to hear him, I'd like to hear Paul speak for himself, so it's important here to realize this though, that because Paul has appealed to Caesar now, Herod's judgment means nothing, Okay. Uh, the, the trial that we're about to read now is not a real trial. It's basically an opportunity for Herod to gather information um, to tell Festus what to write to the emperor. So that being said, um, Herod Agrippa II was a lot like his dad. He loved to be worshipped. He loved pomp and, and royalty. And he, uh, he kind of treats this like it's a real court trial, and we'll read about this next here, and starting in verse 23, so Acts 25, 23. Um, This is a large section of scripture, Festus, uh, let me see, Festus makes a long quote, and then we're going to read Paul's defense. We're just going to read it all at once, so we can read it all in context, okay? So, it says in verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, And they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him... But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, That according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins into place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So let's stop there. This is the third time in the book of Acts that we read about Paul's conversion story about how he met Jesus, how he became a Christian and how Jesus then sent him on mission from what we read here is what I want us to think about today what does this say about what God is like and about what we are like and about what God wants for us <clears throat> what does God want for us Even though Jesus had a specific mission for Paul's life, which Paul testifies to here, Paul's mission aligns with Jesus's mission for all of us who follow Jesus. Remember Jesus's great commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See how similar that is. What he told to the church, what he told us to what he told Paul here in Acts 26, 16 to 18. Let's read that one more time. What he says to Paul. But rise and stand up upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose what do these verses tell us about what God wants for us? They tell us that God wants good for us. (laughs) They tell us that God loves us. These verses tell us that Jesus wants to save us from death and destruction. He wants to forgive people of their sin and guilt. Jesus wants to give us a place among his people. He wants to send us out to shine his light in the darkness. This is what it means to have our lives on earth redeemed by Jesus, to be saved by Jesus and then to be sent out on this earth for Jesus. And in today's passage, Paul describes in five steps or ways how Jesus saves his people and then how he sends them out as his missionaries. So how does he save them and then how does he send them? First, he says, God appoints all Christians to declare the gospel to non-Christians. God appoints all Christians to declare the gospel to non-Christians. In verse 16, Jesus tells Paul that he has appeared to Paul. Why? To appoint him as a servant and as a witness of what Jesus has said and done. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you too have been appointed by God to others, to the good news of what Jesus said and what he did. And Paul summarizes here, what, what is that? What, Paul summarizes it here for Agrippa in verse 23, that the Christ may suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And I'm not gonna get into Isaiah 42 today, but I would encourage you to read that because this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. So the gospel or the good news of Jesus is that the Christ, our Savior, died on behalf of his people to take away their sins. And that three days later, Jesus Christ was the first to rise from the dead, foreshadowing what is to come. For his people, and as the resurrected Lord Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world, he offers new life to all peoples of the earth who will trust in him. God appoints all Christians, all of us, to declare this good news. We want all non-Christians to hear this good news so that they might be saved by God and sent by God like we have been. Obviously, that's not the only purpose of the gospel is for non-Christians, it's it's for Christians too, but specifically in this passage, that's why Jesus says he sent Paul. And second, God uses the declared gospel to open the spiritual eyes of non-Christians. He uses the gospel to open eyes. So the gospel is not merely the message of Jesus that one trusts in to be saved, it is that. But the Gospel message is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to open the eyes of the lost. See, that's, why, that's what Jesus tells Paul here in verse 16 to 18. Paul, I've appointed you to be a witness to the Gospel in order to, by witnessing, open the eyes of the lost people I'm sending you to. One of the consequences of the curse of sin is that God has allowed Satan to blind the eyes and minds of non-believers so that they do not see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In John 12, 37 to 40, we read, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And then Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So because our eyes are blinded by Satan in our natural state, we cannot see Jesus as glorious. We don't see him as the light to follow. And so what we need is for Jesus to break into our hearts and shine the light of what? Of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit does not break into our hearts using no knowledge, he breaks into our heart using the knowledge of the gospel to open our eyes because it is in the gospel that we most uh, clearly see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God uses the declared gospel to open the spiritual eyes Of non-christians that's exciting when you think about evangelism but God's not appointing you only to go just preach the gospel and sow seed but that's part of it but it's like do you want to be part of opening people's eyes (laughs) you have the gospel the treasure handed down from Christ himself when that in the hands of the Holy Spirit permeates a person's heart He opens their eyes so that they can see Jesus as glorious. And we get to be part of that. We get to be the ones who sow that seed of the gospel. So God uses the declared gospel to open the spiritual eyes of non-Christians. Third, newly opened eyes choose to turn away from Satan and to turn to Jesus in faith. Newly opened eyes, choose to turn away from Satan and to turn to Jesus in faith. So here in verse 18, Jesus says that he wants Paul to declare the gospel, to open the eyes of non-believers. Why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So how do open eyes do that? Well, when your eyes are open, what happens? You see what is really around you. And when you see what is really around you, you act accordingly and interact with the things that you see. And Jesus says here that what is really around us is darkness and the power of Satan. This is Jesus talking here. Now, when you're spiritually blind, you don't believe Jesus when he says that you're living in darkness and in the power of Satan because that's not what you see. But when Jesus shines in your heart and use it uh, through the message and the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the reality of your spiritual condition, that he convicts you that without him, you are in a bad situation, living in darkness in alignment with the power of Satan. And when you finally can see that, this is not a good situation for me now or going forward. When you can see the reality of what sin and hell and death and what Satan wants for you, destruction and death, when you can see how these things dishonor and disobey the holy God of the universe who made you and loved you, you don't wanna stay there anymore. (laughs) Suddenly, by God's grace, it's a no-brainer to turn from the darkness to the light. it, it, It doesn't take convincing to turn away from Satan who wants death for you to Jesus who wants life for you and gave his life for you. So turning away from Satan and turning to Jesus, this is what it means to repent, to turn, to change your mind, see reality. And newly opened eyes, because they see the reality of their spiritual condition around them, choose to turn away from Satan, and to turn to Jesus in faith. Fourth, turning to Jesus in faith, what does this passage say it brings? It brings forgiveness of sins and a place among God's holy people. Okay. So Jesus says in verse 18 that turning to God results in receiving forgiveness of sins by God in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. So this is what he's saying. By purifying you of your sins, God brings you to a new spiritual residence. Your residence is no longer in Satan's kingdom of darkness. Your residence is now in Jesus' kingdom of light. Your place now, where you belong, because of God's grace, is among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Sanctified means to be made holy. And because Jesus has removed your sin from you by bearing that on the cross and putting it to death, and then by replacing the sin in you with his own righteousness, he has. Imputed or consider you to be holy and acceptable in his sight. Okay? You are positionally holy in God's sight, Christian. As you stand today. Now, well, so why do I struggle with sin and unholy thoughts and impure things and all this? Well, you're not home yet. As a result of your positional holiness before God, You live in this period of time on earth where you're declared holy in the spiritual realms and now God wants you to pursue holiness while you live on earth, okay? Be holy as I am holy. That's what God says all throughout the Old Testament. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect, okay? We can't do that without Jesus, right? So this brings us then, to the reality that God wants holiness for us. He wants holy thoughts. He wants to transform the way we think which trans- and the way that we believe about the world and him and us, which then transforms the way that we think about our thoughts and the way that we think about one another and the way that we live and the way that we speak. And this will then bring us to the, the fifth uh, point in this passage, which is this. Fifth, Jesus' holy people joyfully seek to perform deeds in keeping with their repentance so this was a phrase that John the Baptist used do deeds in keeping with your repentance this is a phrase that pops up throughout the throughout the Bible and let's talk about what this means verse 19 says that Paul declared to people everywhere that they should repent and turn to God and then what's the result what do we do and then perform deeds in keeping with your repentance so Think about this. People whose eyes God has opened to see his glory, they also see how glorious the deeds are that highlight God's glory and grace. Okay? So if your eyes have been opened to see the glory of Jesus, then also you begin to see the deeds that point to Jesus as glorious because they reflect Christ. And when God uses his gospel to give sight to the spiritually blind and he makes that person born again, that person now, because uh, in fulfillment of prophecy has had their heart of stone removed and been given a heart of flesh for God, that person now sees God as desirable. Like this is some, I want God. Uh, holy, if God is holy, I wanna be holy. If God is loving, I wanna be loving. If God is forgiving, I wanna become a more forgiving person. So that person now sees holiness as, wow, that's what God is like? And he's the way and the truth and the life and and the light of the world. I want to be like that. And he sees by God's grace sin more clearly for what it is. It is too. Is I don't want that. I used to love that. I used to pursue that. I used to make that my first priority. And as much as Satan tempts me to want that and as much as my flesh tells me to want that, That's not what I really want most. I want God, and I want to bring glory to God in my life. That's why all of life is repentance. Because in this life, we're not going to be perfect. But it's coming. (laughs) Jesus will glorify us. You know the good news of Jesus sweet so the good news of Jesus is that God does not love or accept you because of your massive accumulation of deeds that you 've done that are in keeping with repentance. The good news of Jesus isn't that, uh, uh, is that isn't the, that God loves you or accepts you because of your eagerness to do good deeds that 's all I can just think about' is doing good things for other people and, and pursuing holiness and making sacrifices for Jesus you're not even saved by that God accepts us because we trust in what he's done for us we trust in Jesus' perfect life in his deeds that are perfect we trust in his sin bearing death which took away our imperfect and sinful deeds and we trust in his resurrection from the dead for us by which we receive the righteousness of God. So that's very important to remember when we start thinking about obeying God because it is not an obedience driven by the law which should be drudgery for us, but now we are freed because we're not saved by those things, we're saved by Jesus and so now we get to pursue Jesus because we love him and because we wanna bring him glory and because we want other people to know that God loves them and they can bring him glory too. That's a whole different ballgame. That's a whole different way of looking at becoming holy. God uses our our words, he's designed this, Christians, to use your words, your actions, your redeemed thoughts to build his people up. Not to divide or discourage them, but to build them up, make them stronger in their faith. Individually and as a corporate family, God has, has gifted you um, and, and he wants to show off his glory through you to the created world, um, visible, things that you see, and invis- invisible, things you can't see, that are watching right now. And God, and nobody but God knows that he is showing his glory through you and these inv- invisible spirits are watching you and, and God is smiling and they are not because he is redeemed and he has power and authority over all. And then God saves us for good works to send out us out on mission to spread his glory. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, for holy works, for doing things that bring us more joy and God more joy and glory which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared beforehand works for you to do to enjoy him and to spread his glory. And one of those good works which God appoints all Christians to do is to tell of God's glory and grace in the gospel of Jesus. And that takes us right back to the first point of how God saves people and then sends people. The gospel must be declared to the world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is how God saves his people. This is how God gathers his people. This is how God sends us on mission to save more people and to do good works in his name. Christians declare the gospel to non-believers. God uses the gospel to open the eyes of the blind. God takes, non-believers who, who now have open eyes and, and, they, and he empowers them to turn away from the darkness and to turn to the light of Jesus who forgives them and makes them holy and gives them a place among his holy people and that they should go perform God-glorifying deeds like declaring the gospel to non-believers which God will use to open their eyes to turn them away from the darkness and to faith in Jesus and forgive them and make them holy and give them a place among his people's and to send them out to do good words like telling the gospel to those people. And the result of all of this, the result of God's plan for revealing his glory and saving a people for himself this way is that many people will be rescued from their guilt and their sin. Many people will be made eternally joyful now and forever in Christ. And Christ alone will rightly receive all glory, all praise for who he is, for his compassion toward us, and for his awesome power to be the one alone who can do this. This is what Paul preached to Festus and Agrippa and all their counselors. Let's see how they responded in Acts 26 verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So in these verses, and Paul is living out the reality now of a transformed life. (laughs) of a uh, life characterized by the love of Jesus Christ. And Festus calls him crazy, mocking him, calling him crazy. And King Agrippa says, do you really think you can make me a Christian in, in such a short time? And, and Paul says to these corrupt men, right? I don't care how long it takes to persuade you. I wish to God that not only you, but all of you this day would trust in Jesus and be saved. Only the love and power of Jesus Christ in Paul uh, could do that. And may God fill us with the same love to pray the same thing for our enemies too. Like most non-Christians, Festus responds to the gospel He calls it foolishness. Festus calls Paul a crazy man, but isn't that exactly what you'd expect from someone who is spiritually blind? He and we do not mean that in a, dura- a, 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 a uh, condescending way. We're trying to just preach the truth of what Jesus says here. The idea of a resurrected Lord to rescue from darkness is ridiculous if you don't see that you're living in darkness and aligning yourself with Satan. It is ridiculous if you don't see that. But I love Paul's response to Festus in verse 25. He says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true words, I'm speaking rational words. Christianity is a true and rational faith. You need to know that. It is a true and rational worldview, grounded in history, verifiable by history. Herod knows that Paul is speaking uh, truthfully and rationally. That's why Paul kind of points at him, because Herod's a Jew, and Paul does something really great here, really gutsy. He, He actually puts Herod on the spot. He asks him if he believes the prophets. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe that Jesus is this fulfillment of the prophets? And, and basically here it avoids the question. And he tells Paul he won't be convinced of the gospel. So quickly, it's a similar response to what Felix had. I don't like where this conversation's going. <laughs> I want to get out of here, right? Well, as many of us know, non-believers often will not trust in Jesus the first time they hear the gospel. But many of you in this room know this, that maybe you heard the gospel many times in your life. Maybe you grew up in the church for 30 years and heard the gospel your whole life before one day God opened your eyes with the gospel and you heard it with new ears. It's like, I've never heard this before. And you saw it with new eyes and you saw your own condition before God and you're like, I wanna know this God and I need this God because I am headed to hell without this God. My life is a mess. I need the hope of Jesus Christ. And none of us can make any other person believe the gospel, of course, but what we continue to pray is this, that God, God would put you know, the, the power of the gospel to work through our words as we just pray for our neighbors, as we love them, And as God appoints the right time for us to tell, just have conversations about Jesus with others. But uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is, the Holy Spirit uses it, it's good news. Let's read how Paul's time with Agrippa ended starting in verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they would withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. So like all the judges before, these leaders couldn't find Paul uh, guilty. He was not deserving of death or imprisonment, which didn't really help Festus write that letter he needed to write. What's clear though is this, Paul has used his Roman citizenship to appeal to Caesar and it's now time to send Paul off to Rome. And that's where he's gonna go head toward next week. So I would say this to you today, whatever circumstances you find yourself in this week, I pray for all of us that God would shine in your heart to see the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ that you would turn to him again or for the first time and trust in him that he's in control and good and wants good for you. And that you would joyfully do acts of service in his name to encourage his people and to make his name famous in this dark world. Would you please stand with me and uh, I'll close our time together in prayer. Send us out. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great news uh, that you have conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell for us, that we can be saved by faith in you. May this gospel never become old news to us. May it always be fresh, good news to us. May we celebrate it every day. God, we're so thankful that you've saved us and given us a place, a new residence in your kingdom of light. Um that you've made us citizens of your kingdom now, and that uh, while we're here, God, you've redeemed our lives for your glory, and you want to use us to spread the light. You want us to love like you loved. You want us to speak the truth in love. You want us to serve like you served. You want us to advance your kingdom here on earth, God, and you give us all the tools, your word, your Holy Spirit to do that. So. I just pray encouragement for all of us here, God, wherever we're at, that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, you would revive us with a desire for you, a desire to make your name famous, a joy in you. Um, help us to continue to pray for the lost and love the, the lost people around us and serve them. And uh, God, we just thank you so much that, man, we, we're not saved by our good deeds um, or by our eagerness to please you. We're saved by you. We're saved by Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, and give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.